Welcome to the ACC Podcast. My name's Tyler Birch. I'm a minister here at Anacortes Christian Church. We hope our weekly messages are a resource to help you grow spiritually and that they would bring you closer with God and His Son, Jesus. If you want more info about ACC, find us on Facebook or check out our website, anacortischristian.church. Enjoy the message. Who here likes to eat? Yeah, who here likes a good feast? I do, definitely, yeah. Uh, speaking of that, incidentally, we mentioned the kickoff celebration is coming up. There's sign-ups out there. You can, you can build the feast. You can bring something. Uh, we'd love for you to help us with that. That's our time, kickoff Sunday, where we are launching back into our fall programming with small groups, ministries, and other things. School starting again. Football starting again. You know, kickoff. You know, all those things. So, um, you know, I'm kind of bummed that summer's over. Um, But I'm excited about feasts. You know, those are good things. So come and join the feast and participate in it. Go sign up. But today I want to talk about the ultimate feast. Now, I almost hesitate to frame this message that way because we're not just talking about a meal when we talk about the ultimate feast. I'm talking about challenging ourselves and disciplining ourselves to think about the way we approach the world, the way we view the world. You can wake up every morning and accept a gracious invitation from our host and approach your day in a way that will, for one, free you from anxiety and worry, and two, cause you to live a life of abundant generosity with an open hand rather than a clenched fist. This summer, we've been preaching through a selection of the parables of Jesus, and last week was the two lost sons, or the prodigal son, you might have heard it called. Both sons were lost, as we discovered last week. It ended with the father throwing a feast in honor of the younger brother who had squandered all his wealth and loose living and prostitutes and everything, but had repented and come home to the father. But the shock The shock to Jesus' audience, who would have been the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, is that the older brother, the one who did all the right things, the one who stayed home, the one who served the Father, the shock is that he's the one standing outside the feast. He's the one refusing to go in, as far as we know. That's where the story ends. And the Father has to come out and plead with him. And that's a shock because by our worldly reckoning, he's the one who deserves to go in while the younger brother should be cast out. And we're going to pick up on that theme of feasting this week. What does the feast really mean? Because one thing you'll notice is that the buildup in the book of Luke, chapters 12 all the way up to 15, is all about eating. It all takes place around eating. Most of it does. You'll notice that in the Bible, a huge percentage of content centers around food and feasting and wedding banquets and celebrations and so on. And in most of the material we have in the Gospels about Jesus takes place around some kind of feast or meal or celebration of some kind. And so why is that? There's a reason for that. And so the question is, what's the feast and who's in and who's out? Isaiah 25 gives a good description of the ultimate feast. Verses 6 through 9 says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, 
the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Okay, sounds, sounds great so far. Who is the feast for? Okay, we read above, it's for all peoples. It's for everyone. The invitation is for all to come and join. But who will actually be there? Well, there's a little hint as we read on. Verse 9 says, In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Those who come in are specifically those who trusted in the Lord as their salvation. Many are invited. Not all will come. Luke 13, 28, Jesus says, There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. So there's this great feast in store, and I want you to keep that in mind as we dive into Luke 14, because Jesus is going to use a particular meal to point towards that ultimate feast. Isaiah 25 says that those who enter are those who trust in the Lord for their salvation. What does that mean, and what does it look like in our day-to-day -day life? Jesus is about to reveal that those who think they've accepted the invitation are proving that by their actions, in this story at least, that they don't really trust. And they're actually blind to this. So it's a good opportunity for us to look at ourselves and say, what about us? What are our assumptions? The context of Luke 14, the parable we're going to look at, I've got to give some context um, because there's three scenes to this part of chapter 14 we're going to talk about. And the first is the setting. Jesus has been invited to celebrate a meal at the home of a prominent Pharisee. It's also the Sabbath day, a day of rest and feasting. That day is meant to remind us once a week, every week, that above all else, we live in a world that is plugged full of abundance, beauty, and resources. We've been invited to this feast by a very gracious, generous, giving, abundant host. God's first words to man in Genesis are an invitation to feast. Sabbath is a weekly call to return to that table and get our heads in the right place. That passage we read in Isaiah describes an ultimate feast. In essence, it's a restoration of Eden, a time when once again humans will mutually benefit from God's generosity in the way we were meant to. So before we even get into our passage, here's the hidden question it's going to ask of us. When you wake up every morning, do you encounter a world full of abundance provided by a generous host? Or do you encounter a world in which there is never enough? Your answer to that question will shape the way you live, 
how you treat your resources, whether you live at peace or anxiety, whether you harbor envy or resentment towards others versus treating others with equity and respect, and so on. In short, what your view of the world is says something about your view of the character of God. Is he a good host who gives more than enough, or does he withhold, and therefore there is never enough? And we're already honing in on the question, what does it mean to trust in God? Also, please don't think that I'm turning a blind eye to the reality of our world or asking us to put our heads in the sand and be willfully naive or ignorant about the harsh realities of our world. But this is that reality, that in fact, we live in a world that is absolutely full of and capable of producing vastly more than enough resources to care for every human being on this planet, and yet, somehow, we can't seem to figure out how to do that. That's like the biggest picture of the human condition right now. There is vastly more than enough on this earth for everyone. If you have a four by eight plot of grass on your property, you could rip that up and grow a lot of food. This earth has been given everything we need to care for everyone. We abuse that in some ways. We exhaust certain resources. Greed gets in the way. The human condition takes its toll and people suffer, but that doesn't change the reality. So if that's the reality, that we can't seem to figure out how to meet the basic needs of millions of people, is that a God problem or a human problem? And if we just start with what he's provided at creation, we can say it's not a God problem. At this Sabbath meal, the important people are watching Jesus to see what he would do. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. By Jewish rules, healing someone would count as work, and there's this man present with an abnormal swelling of his body, edema, they think it is. So what does Jesus do? Of course, he heals the man, right? He kind of, they have some dialogue, he sort of traps them in their logic, and he heals the man on the Sabbath. There's a text in Leviticus that lists different kinds of infirmities as making someone uh, unfit to enter into the holy place in God's temple or tabernacle. You have to be in a, a state of wholeness to come before the Lord. And so by Jesus' time, we have texts from the Qumran uh, texts that they discovered with the Dead Sea Scrolls and whatnot that reveal that the more legalistic Jews had applied those verses in Leviticus to say that people like this man with edema would not have been qualified for that ultimate feast either. So in one sense, what Jesus is doing when he heals this man is he is qualifying the unqualified. At the same time, there's kind of an unspoken challenge to the guests and the hosts at the table to strongly consider, what does your attitude towards this man reveal about your own place at the feast? What does it reveal about your view of God's generosity? Next, Jesus addresses the guests. He says, when you're at a wedding banquet, don't try to promote yourself by taking the seat of honor or you'll likely be humiliated. Take the lowest seat and the master of ceremonies will likely honor you and move you upward. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
And finally, this is where we're going to pick up our text today. Jesus addresses the host. So Luke, 20, or Luke 14, 12 through 24. Then Jesus said to the host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brother, or your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the, king, at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. There's a lot here, and I'm sure we could plumb the depths of it all day, but I've already used a good chunk of our time, and so I'm going to quickly move through four observations that we get from this passage about those who enter into that feast. Notice, if we're to take this at face value, Jesus is saying that just because you're invited doesn't mean you'll come in. It's a call for us who go about our day-to-day lives assuming that we'll be in because we wear a badge that says, I'm invited to take stock and really question whether we will truly enter. How do we know? So here are four characteristics from our text of the kind of people who will come into that great feast. One, your people change. Two, your people change because your priorities change. Three, your priorities change because your treasure changes. And four, your treasure changes because your heart has been changed. Your people, your priorities, your treasure, your heart are changed to a kingdom economy, a kingdom view of people, kingdom priorities, kingdom treasure, and a kingdom heart. So first, people. Your people change. Jesus first calls upon his host to change his people. Don't just invite those who will invite you back or who will repay you, those who have, but instead invite the have-nots. They cannot repay you, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Again, what is your view of the world? If you live out of a sense that you are lacking and there is never enough, 
You will seek out people in order to gain. People of advantage who can benefit you. You'll invite those who will give you some kind of reciprocal benefit. Those who will make you feel like you're moving up in the world. But if you live out of a constant sense of the selfless abundance of a giving and generous God, then your people will change. You will not determine your people for your own gain, but rather you'll seek out those to whom you can pour into like a river or share in the abundance that God has given us. And by the way, that sense of abundance doesn't depend on the size of your bank account. It depends on your view of God and who he is. Will there be more than enough at the resurrection? Has he given us enough today? Is he a good giver who can be trusted even in times of want and in times of plenty? In the parable that Jesus tells, the host of the banquet changes his people when those he invites excuse themselves. Have you ever been that kid that invited a bunch of people to a birthday party and like almost no one showed up? That'd be terrible, wouldn't it? Why wouldn't they show up? Maybe they don't view the host as particularly advantageous to them. Maybe they have other priorities. He turns to the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, and the outsiders. Why? He says, so that my house will be full. He wants to share in his abundance, but ironically, his original invitees seem to be too good for that abundance. Have your people changed? Do you seek out the people who can fill you or people you can share in God's filling? So that's the first one. Our people change because our priorities have changed. What's the Pharisee, the host of the table? What's his priority here? Self-promotion. It's all about self-promotion. Klein Snodgrass wrote, The Pharisees are obsessed with self-promotion rather than surrendering in trust to the one who calls. Christian discipleship is not self-promotion, but freedom from it. Freedom from self-obsession itself. It trusts in the one who calls, in God rather than in Torah, to bestow personal identity and honor to establish our place and purpose in life. If you go back to Genesis 3, the man and the woman have been placed in a lush garden and they're told to feast on any tree. The serpent tempts Eve, but how does he do it? He comes and he, he plants an idea. What does he say to her? He says, did God say that you can't eat from any tree in this garden? Now the reader knows, Eve knows, and the serpent knows that that's ridiculous. Right, that God said, you can eat from any tree in this garden. And that's what the woman says. No, he said we can eat from any tree in the garden. But he planted the idea, didn't he? He gave her an idea. And all of a sudden she's like, but there is that one tree. And he said that if we eat of that or, or we touch it, we'll, we'll die. And so the serpent reassures her. He says, no, no, you're not going to die. For God knows that if you eat that tree, you'll be promoted you'll become like Elohim, like the gods, like God, knowing good and evil. What's he doing? He's planting an idea. 
God is withholding from you. God is holding back. There isn't enough. But if you promote yourself, you can be the master of your own banquet. You can control your own resources. You don't have to worry about depending on God or whether or not you trust Him as a good provider. You'll promote yourself. Jesus reveals, if you throw a banquet and only invite the people that will be advantageous to you, are you free or are you a slave? To follow Christ is not self-promotion, but the freedom from self-promotion. The freedom to not have to worry about getting myself to a place by using other people where there will be enough. Why do we feel we need to promote ourselves? We feel that because there is, by our human condition, a disconnect with a sense of the Father's love. When we live in a worldview that says there's never enough, we lack trust in God, or we see Him as withholding from us, and therefore we use people and resources for our own advantage. And that's the economy of this world. But when we see our world through a lens of a God of abundance, our priorities change to kingdom economy. So have your priorities changed? Our people change because our priorities change, and our priorities change because our treasure has changed. In the parable of the great banquet, notice that the invitation went out prior to the time of the banquet. In other words, the guests had ample warning time. They could have made this banquet a priority if they wanted to. But when the servant goes out and proclaims that all is ready, they make excuses why they can't come. Therefore, the host turns to those who will respond to the feast. It's interesting, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 20, loosely. And in Deuteronomy 20, there's a passage, and it's couched in, when you go to battle, when you go to take the promised land over the Jordan, don't be afraid of your enemies. God has given this land into your hands, and he will fight for you. But then it goes on and says, tell the officers to tell the army, has anyone built a new house and not yet begun to live in it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else may begin to live in it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else marry her. Then the officers shall add, Is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too. See, what's interesting about this passage is that it sounds like, hey, if, if you're not in this, we don't want to force you. You know, there's some good excuses here. And there are good excuses. So you can be excused. But it's couched between, you have nothing to worry about. The Lord will fight for you. The promise of the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, is far greater than the home you just bought. And the risk is worth the relationships that you're in. And the, the, the joy of what is to be beheld and to be captured is greater than the vineyard that you just bought. And, and so he's saying, you can go home if your lack of trust is going to affect 
other people in this camp and diminish their faith too. And that's the context of this thing because here at the same feast, Jesus describes three people who give similar excuses, and they're good excuses. Why not to come to the feast? But the truth is, if they had really thought, if they really understood the nature of this banquet, they could have made a way. They could have come. There are the invited, and then there are those who respond. The feast is for all peoples, Isaiah said, yet the parable ends with the host saying, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Why? Imagine being at that great banquet. Imagine being at a huge feast, and there's just unending rows of tables full of food, and there's way more than enough for everyone who is there. And you're enjoying this, and you look around, and, and over here, there's this corner, and in that corner, there's this little huddle of people. And they're running over, and they're quickly, they're looking around, they've got this platter, and they're shoveling appetizers onto their platter. And they're going, and they're cutting pieces of meat and getting things, and they're bringing it back to their little corner, and they're looking around, and you walk over, and you're kind of like, hey, guys, what are you doing? But there's these, like, sentries standing guard, and they're saying, like, hey, that, you've come far enough. We don't want you to come any further. But you realize there's lots here, right? There's plenty, plenty of food. Yeah, but we've got to take care of our own. We've got to take care of our family. We want to make sure that we're all taken care of. Then, you know, we'll, we'll go out there and, and so on. So, you know, and, and at that point, that might plant an idea in your mind. Wow, what if there isn't enough? Wow, uh, you know, I might need to take care of my own. I might need to know the right people. I might need to get in with the right people. I might need to promote myself in order to get in on this little stash right here. In the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God, there will be no people like that, is what he's saying. Recall last week the story of the prodigal son. The father is pleading with the older brother about the younger brother. In this instance, the older brothers are too preoccupied with their own economies to take God's invitation seriously. Their fields, their oxen, and so on. And so God goes after the younger brother types himself, those who will participate in God's economy. But the sign of the one who will enter the feast is that their treasure has changed. They have learned that the real treasure is not the gifts, but the giver. They have learned to treasure and adore their abundantly generous host, and they trust him. One hurdle for people considering faith is the belief in a God who arbitrarily sends people to hell. In this passage, we see that the host, God, excludes no one. It is he who first issues the invitation. People outside the feast, they're not thrown out. They refuse to come in in the first place. They've excluded themselves, like the older brother and the prodigal son. And we might respond to that by saying, no way. Like, who in their right mind would refuse to come into the ultimate feast in Isaiah 25 or Revelation 21? Jesus' urgency in this parable is that he seems to be saying, you just might. Just because you're invited doesn't mean you'll come in. I get the sense that this feast may not look like what we imagine it might look like. 
But the message is, now all is ready. The indicator for how you will respond to God's ultimate future feast is how you're responding to it today. There's a reason why Jesus is using an ordinary Sabbath meal to expose the worldly economy taking place at what should be a microcosm, a herald of the kingdom feast and the kingdom's economy. We may consider ourselves the invited, but if we're too busy to accept invitations or participate in kingdom economy today, are we kidding ourselves? when we assume we would respond to Jesus' banquet? Have we changed it all? All is ready now. Live your life anticipating the ultimate feast by celebrating it properly today. And how would you know if you do that? Well, what's your take on the world? Do you live in a world in which, above all else, God has poured out abundant blessings and more than enough? or in a world in which there is never enough? Do you trust him? Have your people changed? You don't primarily seek out those who will fill you up for your advantage, but those whom you can share with in God's abundance? Have your priorities changed? No longer about promoting myself or getting in with the right people, but the assurance of an identity in Christ that brings freedom from self-promotion? Have your treasures changed? No longer about the gifts, but the giver. Because lastly, your heart has changed. You see, we can't force or coerce any of those changes. It has to come from a, a root, a heart change. And at the root of it all, we have to experience his abundance, his love. And that experience comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It starts when we realize that we are not entitled to his feast. In fact, we don't deserve to come in at all. He is the host who didn't seek us out because we offer him some particular advantage as though we could repay him. No, in our sinful, worldly economy, we're the blind, we're the lame, we're the crippled, we're the poor. We're the ones who look to use people, to invite the certain people. We're the ones who try to get a leg up and to avoid those who we view as lower than ourselves. No, but because he is a God who desires to share his abundance, he left his seat at the table. He left heaven for you. He gave to the extreme, even pouring out his very life for you, saying, feast on my very body and blood given for you. Our people can change because he made us his people. We're the ones he went after out on the roadside in the alleyways. He was rejected by those he had invited, and yet when they nailed him to a cross, he cried out, Father, forgive even them for they don't know what they're doing. We can change our priorities because unlike Eve, who considered an equality with God a thing to be grasped and sought to promote 
herself, which became the stamp of the entire human legacy. Philippians 2 says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself for us, taking the form of a servant. As a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. Therefore, God has exalted him above all other names. We can change our priorities, our self-promotion, because he made us his priority when we didn't deserve it. He became a servant of all to do it. We can change our treasure because he has made us his treasure. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How deep indeed. His love changes hearts, which changes treasures, which changes priorities, which changes our people's. Where are you at in the feast today? Who are your people? What are your priorities? What is your treasure? And how do we keep a a perspective on this? For the Jews, it took discipline. The command was to celebrate the Sabbath, to rest in God's goodness and feast one day a week. It was a reminder that was meant to keep them grounded. The Lord's Supper is a similar celebration and anticipation for us today. And so in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate that together. The ushers are going to come and they're going to hand out some bread and a cup, which represents Jesus' body and blood given for us. It represents gospel abundance that changes hearts and it invites us to return to again, to once again return to and appreciate the abundance with thanksgiving for all he has given us so that out of that abundance we will become kingdom people at the feast of God. This is a precursor. This is a microcosm of that feast. And if I can just leave us before we go with one tip. It seems like our hearts are pretty fickle. And so in the Old Testament, there's routines, there's disciplines, like celebrating the Sabbath, like breaking up your year into festivals, feasts, having some fun, in fact, to remember God's goodness. I just want to challenge you to get some routine in your life. I know I need this. I need to wake up every morning, and before I think about what my kids are going to be like that morning, or what I need to cook them for breakfast, or how to get them out the door, and how I don't really want to get out of bed and all that stuff. What if we start the day with a view of our world as an extension of God's abundant feast? He's given everyone, whether you experience plenty or not, he has given, first and foremost, everyone more than enough to care for everyone. Do we see him that way? As a giver of good things? If we start our day that way, it'll change the way we think and the way we live. Change your mindset. Practice thanksgiving. 
This world is still a banquet table where our host has given us more than enough. Don't buy into the lie that there is never enough. Whatever you have, even if it's just God's grace, there is something abundant there that can be shared with others. So let it change your heart so that it changes and becomes your treasure, which changes your priorities, which changes your people. And these are the marks of those who are at home in that feast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, change our hearts now. Give us a view of your goodness and a reminder of all the blessings you have poured out on us. Let us see not just our complaints, our broken bodies, our dwindling bank accounts, the people who should be treating us the way we think they should, but rather the mass of wealth that you offer. Even materially, though that is not a guarantee for this life. But more than that, there's a greater wealth. It's in the love that you've shown us in your son, Jesus Christ. And right now, Lord, we return once again to the discipline of coming back to that celebration, that feast of receiving the gift from the one who gave it all. A feast better than any party we can imagine. So God, bring us back to that place of your abundance today and let it do its work in our hearts once again and crack away the hard soil and tenderize us to open us up to your love so that we are changed, our priorities are changed, our people are changed, our treasure is changed because you become that treasure, you who first treasured us when we didn't deserve it. Forgive us for our waywardness. Bring us back to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Just a reminder that we love you and God loves you and that you have a place here at Anacortes Christian Church. During the summer months, we only have one service at 10 a.m., but on September 15th, we return to our normal schedule of two services, one at 8.15 and another at 10 a.m. We hope to see you soon.